And Father, we thank you for who you are to us. We thank you for the work you've started in our lives and what you've what you've already done, what you're going to do, and what you will continue to do. I pray that you would anoint this service. Lord, drench us, Lord, in your oil from the Holy Spirit, Lord, in your power. Lord, illuminate our minds. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you'd have for us, God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. The book of Esther, the book of Esther is like a drama. It's like a drama. And don't take this the wrong way. Don't take it in a derogatory way. I do not mean this degrading, because if I heard it put this way and I was not familiar with Esther, I might get a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. But Esther's kind of like an extreme soap opera, genuinely. And I I don't mean that in a bad way, but the book of Esther is a story of real low lows and very high lows. Highs. There are tears and there are beers. Any country music people in this house? There are threats and there are secrets. There are schemes. There is attempted genocide. This book is a dramatic one with plot twists and people making things happen just by the skin of their teeth. And it's so nuanced in, in human interaction and manipulation that there are parts of this story that you can actually see yourself in or, or relate to people who went around you in this kind of way. Or maybe it was even you who coordinated some go-between. It's a story that is laced with poison in high places, but also driven by integrity and tenacity from the unexpected. It's as if every act monopolizes upon the next, and you're left wondering what's next because the story, it gets so deep, and you know that there's a director somewhere orchestrating it all, but, but you never see him come into view. It's dramatic. It's, I'm telling you, it's a drama, y'all. And how many times in our lives does it sometimes feel like we're living out a drama of our own, a drama of our own. Maybe nobody has a target on your back for murder, but you know what? We might place a target on someone else's back with our idle gossip or our slander. Come on, somebody. Many times it seems to me that the circumstances, the acts, the scenes of our lives, whether they involve actual people or or rather our emotions or our finances, our health, our family, whatever it is, it seems that it's those sorts of things that have the great potential to take center stage of our life, removing our eyes and our attention from where they need to be, which is centered on Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, as our identity, our only source of confidence. Amen? And it's when your eyes are directed towards the distractions, it's when your eyes are directed towards the circumstances that your life can feel like a circus because you've lost your center. You've taken your eyes away from that lighthouse. That's, it's when your identity is shaking. That's when you have feelings of being overwhelmed that begin to flood in because you don't necessarily see the way maker or the miracle worker parting your Red Sea or feeding your 5,000 or calming your stormy mind. Does anybody hear what I'm saying this morning? I need somebody to wake up and preach with me a little bit. There's times when it's hard and it feels like your life is a drama and the only only person on the set is the devil getting the props ready for the next terror or nightmare that he's going to introduce. I know it's hard. We all live through these types of seasons, eras, times, whatever you like to call it. But there's a message I want to give you today, and it's a very simple one, and it's this. Nothing is too hard for my God. Amen. Nothing is too big. Nothing is too impossible for my God not to meet a need. It's like that old song said. Never has there been a problem 
bigger than my God could solve. Never has there been a question baffling the mind of God. Why? Because he's given us the power. Come on, he's given us the power to rise above the enemy because nothing's too big for God. No impossibility. Now listen to me today. If you're not familiar with the book of Esther, it's a story that consists of primarily four characters. There's many more than that, some named, some not named, but primarily there are four characters. The first character is King Xerxes. King Xerxes. King Xerxes, he's the king of Persia. To make a long story short, he's more or less a drunken pushover. If you know Esther, you know that's the truth. He just constantly is bending at the will of people and his wine. Haman is the second character we have in this story. And Haman, he's the villain. He's the temporary right hand man of the king. He's, he's a man hungry for power. He's full of hatred. He's full of bitterness and pride. And let me tell you, it was this hatred, this bitterness, and this pride that became the nails, the lumber, and the rope that ended up building the gallows, which he swung on. The next character we have is Mordecai. And Mordecai is a Jewish patriot. This guy is a man with some backbone. He is what you would call, he was promoted from a slave to what you could call the vice president, if you would, okay? He was a Benjaminite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And he would not bow before Haman and Amalekite because he was a direct descendant of the hereditary enemies of Israel. That gives you some preview into uh, his character. And then we have Esther. And Esther, she is the incumbent queen of Persia. The woman who saved her nation from genocide at the possible expense of her own life. And what we've got here in Esther, if you'll follow me today, is we've got a pretty epic journey of the unexpected. A a marvelous twisting of plot. A beautiful display of tables being turned and the underdogs getting the upper hand. And as you flip through the pages of really this depiction of cunning orchestration and gutsy martyr-like action, you find that nowhere in the verses of this book is God's name mentioned. Nowhere in Esther will you find the name God or Lord mentioned at all. I mean, his people, the Jews, they're the key players at stake when when it's Haman who is writhing in this this concoction of pride and revenge uh, when he persuades Xerxes to kill all of God's people. But The deal is is that God's not found anywhere. You read the whole story, God's not mentioned. His his words are nowhere in quotation. His name is not uttered. We see his people, but it's as if God is behind a curtain. And the entire story, it's centered on the fact. It pivots on the point. It climaxes on this notion that there is an enemy out to kill God's people to annihilate annihilate his children, and in the midst of the circumstance, y'all, it looks like the enemy is going to win. But hear me, just like back then, today it's that same old devil out to steal and to kill and destroy God's church. And listen to me, who's the church? We're the church. 
You're the church. Your Christian home and family is the church. If you're a blood-bought believer, you're part of the church. And what I want ingrained to you into your being today is this, that even when the enemy seems to have the upper hand and it looks like a bounty has been put on your head and there's no hope for your family, there's no hope for your job, there's no hope for your finances, and you feel like you're going under and you can't find God anywhere, I want you to remember this, that nothing's too big for my God. When you can't hear his voice, nor see his name written in the current chapter of hell that you might be living through, you need to look for his hand. See where he's stirring. Look at where he's orchestrating. And if you can't find his hand in your present, and if you don't know when his hand's going to show up in your future, then you need to be like David and turn around and say to your giant, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Listen to me. Remember what he's already done for you. And look ahead to where he's taking you because there may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. You see, the preface... And this entire message is this. When everything is lost and God can't be found, Jesus is still working on your behalf to turn the plans of the enemy right upside down. Hallelujah. Today, it's my goal to try to paint a big picture. And I'm not going to say in a short period of time. I'm going to say in a relatively short period of time. Because if I say a short period of time, I'm going to have some comments from that back left section right after church. They're going to be telling me, you're lying to us, okay? But this is a story. This is a story of a Jewish girl named Esther. And she, like so many of her people, they were abducted and forced from their home under the golden scepter of the Persian Empire. And King Xerxes reigned as their drunken oppressor. And I want you to follow me today. Because I'd like to give you a story of what I'm going to call a complete divine reversal. Divine reversal. You see, I'm going to give you an overview. In the beginning chapters of Esther, Xerxes holds a party, right? For those of you who know about Esther, Xerxes holds a party. And what he's doing is he's showing off his riches and his greatness before everyone in attendance. And in the party, what he does is he calls for his wife, Queen Vashti, to come down so that he can flaunt her beauty before everyone attending. Well, Vashti doesn't like that. And Vashti refuses to come down and be looked upon like a trophy. So what Xerxes does is he gets rid of her. And he holds a beauty pageant for all of his empire uh, in order to find a new beauty to call his queen. And this right here is where Esther enters the scene, as well as her cousin, Mordecai. You see, Esther is forced into this escapade. And Xerxes, when he sees her, he's taken aback. He's completely blown away by her beauty. And, and when he sees her, all of a sudden now, Esther is now crowned as the brand new Miss Persia. And this is not some Steve Harvey moment where they call the wrong name. This Xerxes really chooses her. He really chooses her. And while being forced into this harem non-consensually, Esther is holding something very, very specific back. Something very specific back. She's withholding the fact that she is a Jew. 
and it was at the request of her cousin who raised her, Mordecai, he asked her, do not let them know that you're a Jew. So she keeps it to herself. She, she keeps it concealed for now. Well, one day, Mordecai, he overhears a couple people outside the palace, and what they're doing is they're plotting to kill the king. And so what Mordecai does is he tells Esther about it. And so then Esther goes and tells Xerxes, hey, there's some people planning to kill you. And so Xerxes holds, uh, calls for an investigation. And after the investigation takes place, it's discovered to be true. Both of those men are killed. But here's the deal. Nothing happens for Mordecai. There's no reward, at least not yet. What happens next is that Haman enters the picture. And King Xerxes has just promoted him to be above every other noble. And all of the royal officials at the king's gate, they bowed before him except, guess who? Mordecai. Because Haman was an Amalekite. Mordecai was a Jew. And let me tell you, this really ticked Haman off. It jumped all over his pride like a tick on a dog's ear. It just kept sucking. It got all over him. Haman, what he does when he's mad is he writes up a decree to present to Xerxes planning to kill all of the Jews, okay? And Xerxes, under the influence of much wine, under the influence of the enemy, he agrees to this word of death, and it spreads all throughout Persia that this annihilation is going to take place. When the Jews hear of this extermination, great mourning spreads among God's people. Can you imagine if we saw on the news tomorrow that uh, the vice president went up to Biden and said that we we're going to kill all of the Christians. How would that make you feel? There was great mourning among all of God's people. There was ashes and sackcloth wailing because of the impending genocide of their people. And it's in chapter 4 where Mordecai and Esther essentially end up passing notes back and forth with each other with, via a eunuch of all things. You see, Esther was in the palace, but Mordecai couldn't come in because he was in mourning. He wasn't allowed in with his head covered and, and ashes on his head. And so they are passing notes, basically playing footsie and asking each other, discussing what to do in light of this certain death. Now, I need you to follow me today. Mordecai tells Esther to go beg before Xerxes and plead for the lives of her people. And Esther says, I can't do that. I cannot do that. She says, that's against the law. If, if I go before him when he hasn't called upon me, he'll kill me. That's against the law. She says, the only caveat is if he holds out a scepter as a sign of approval for me to approach. But he hasn't called it me in over a month. I can't go before him. He'll have me killed. And Mordecai, in great desperation, he leaves Esther with this statement. He says, who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And I want to pause here for just a moment today and say that some of you are writing off the season you're living through right now as an attack of the devil, which it might be an attack of the devil, but who knows that you have come to this position you're in for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Well, hear me. Such a time as this is all that Esther needed to hear because she says, uh, as soon as she hears that, she says, you need to gather everybody up, Mordecai, and tell them to get to fasting. She says, go to fasting. And once we've fasted, I'm going to go before the king. And even though it's against the law, I'm going to try this out. We're going we're to give it our best. And then she says in a perilous, a very perilous lie, she says, and if I perish, I perish. 
She says, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen. Now, chapter 5 is where things start heating up. And it gets real rich all of a sudden. Because Esther approaches King Xerxes after the fasting time is over. And what he does is he welcomes her in. And he asks, what is your request? So what she does is she invites both he and Haman to join her at a banquet that she had prepared for them. I need you to follow the storyline this morning. Because I'm going to take you somewhere. So both Esther, I mean, both Haman and Xerxes show up to this banquet with Esther. I'm sure this banquet, you can only imagine what it looked like. I mean, it was probably laid out with Xerxes' favorite foods, laid out magnificently, had some of the best wine the palace had on hand. I mean, Esther was trying to get something from this. You know when you're trying to get something out of somebody, you do things up real nice, right? You know she must have done this real nice. And so at the banquet table with Haman, Xerxes asks Esther again. He says, what is your petition? What is it that you request from me? I'm going to give you up to half of my entire kingdom if you want it. What are you seeking? I'll give it to you, whatever you need, whatever you want. So, and Esther responds in a very peculiar uh, way, a very peculiar way. Picturing the scene in my head, it's as if halfway through her statement, she almost kind of of pauses. She, She says, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my request, it's And then it's like she pauses and she says, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I'll prepare for him. Then I will answer the king's question. It's like there was a kind of a big gulp before she continued. And from the outside looking in, there was no reason for her not to share her request with Xerxes. I mean, she got to him, didn't she? He didn't kill her for approaching. She had Haman present. The scene was set, but it's as if something inside her hit the pause button. It's like she couldn't get the real reason out. It's as if an unseen hand nudged her from the inside to a point where she knew that this was not the right time. Has anybody ever been stopped in your tracks because something nudged you on the inside and said it wasn't the right time? Come on. You see, I need to explain something to you. If Esther would have finished her sentence and revealed the actual request at that time, if she had gone on with what she was going to say, I need you to hear this in a spiritual light. The things, those things in the planning of God would not have occurred in the sequence God wanted them to occur in. And therefore, although she was going to do the right thing, it was at the wrong time. You see, there's something to be said about being still. Not moving until God moves on you. Not acting out of your own volition, but standing fast until you've discerned His not trying to pave a highway in the middle of a wilderness. Come on, somebody. There's something to be said about that. Now, you see, that's chapter 5. But as we look at chapter 6, things start moving faster. And Haman, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Haman's going to leave Esther from that banquet, the banquet that she paused and didn't share her real request in. Haman's going to leave that banquet from Esther's presence, and he's going to run across the road, and he's going to see Mordecai. And guess who's not going to bow to Haman? Mordecai is not going to bow. And that's going to make Haman mad. It's going to fester up his pride. Haman's going to go raging like a bull in a china shop to his wife. Haman's going to come into the house and he's going to say, you know what? 
Everything's going great for me. I'm higher than everyone else. I'm promoted above everyone else. I'm filthy rich. But it's this Jew guy who won't bow to me, and I just can't settle with that. You know, sometimes stuff eats us up. It was eating Haman up. You see, Haman's wife, she's going to say, you know what, Haman, you don't have to take that. You don't have to deal with Mordecai. She says, put him on the gallows tomorrow. And Haman said, well, you know what? That's a really great idea. I'm going to put him on the gallows tomorrow, and I'm going to get rid of him and solve this problem once and for all. Now, if you will, change scenes with me for a moment, because after that same banquet that Haman just left, the king goes to bed. But the problem is that the king can't sleep. He forgot his melatonin. And so he's tossing and he's turning. And while he's stirring and rolling around, he tells the servant to go get a boring book for me to read. Because if I can read that boring book, it'll make me go to sleep. And so they bring him this boring book, which happens to be the chronicles of his royal service. And wow, what do you know? They just happened to turn the page that dealt with Mordecai. And y'all remember what Mordecai did already. Mordecai had saved the king's life earlier. And the king asked, hey, to the servant, what did we do for the guy that saved my life that you just read about out of this boring book because I can't go to sleep? That servant says, king, we never did anything for the guy that saved your life. And as chance, sarcastic quotations, as chance would have it, how many of you know chance is not a real thing? As chance would have it, Haman comes in right when the king is talking to the servant about Mordecai, who had saved his life. And the king asked Haman, he asked Haman, he said, well, Haman, what should I do with somebody who saved the king's life? But he doesn't mention the name Mordecai. And so because he does not mention the name Mordecai, Haman thinks he's talking about himself. That's what pride and an ego will do to you. Haman says, well, for the guy who saved your life, you ought to make him number two in the kingdom so that he's the heir apparent to the rule. And Xerxes, he says, well, you know what, Haman, I like that idea. And so while we're on this, why don't you go on, go ahead and, and get Mordecai so I can put him in that position. And while you're at it, why don't you take his horse and lead it around the streets of my kingdom and proclaim him as the second in command. Church, i got to tell you something. Right now when the enemy has got a, a Haman plotting your defeat, God's also working somewhere higher behind the scenes to set you up for a victory. I need somebody in this church to hear me because it just so happened that during the pause from Esther at the banquet, which produced the banquet delay to the next day, which produced the movement, which produced Mordecai's rejection, which produced Haman's angry wife, which produced Haman wanting to put the gallows together, which produced a sleepless night, which produced a boring book, which produced the name Mordecai, which produced not mentioning Mordecai's name, which produced him being elevated, which produced Haman having to take God's representative through the streets, which produced God, the puppet master, working all these things together according to the good of those who serve him and in his perfect timing. Do you know that God is an orchestrator? Hallelujah. I need somebody in this house to say nothing's too big for my God. Hallelujah. Nothing can confound the creator. Nothing, nothing, no plan of the enemy. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. At the end of chapter 6, Haman rushes home, and he's grieving with his head covered after he had just had to parade his arch-rival all over town. And 
His wife tells him, she says, Haman, dude, this ain't looking good. She said, this ain't looking good. You're the one bowing to the Jew that you were trying to kill because he wasn't bowing to you. It's funny how God can reverse things, church. Even when you don't see it, it's funny how God can turn things around. The word says that while Haman and his wife were still talking, the king's uh, eunuchs rushed Haman away to the banquet that Esther had prepared for him. Remember, the banquet was the next day. While they were talking, the eunuchs rushed Haman out. And it's in the middle of their conversation that the eunuchs came and rushed Haman away. And it's in the middle of his grieving with his head covered in deep emotional agony that Haman was rushed off. Why does this matter? It matters because he didn't have the opportunity to run. He didn't have the opportunity to flee. He didn't have the opportunity to scheme. He didn't have the opportunity to plan because God kept the program moving, popping off events in perfect order, dropping things into a timeline of events that didn't make sense to anyone except him because only he has the full picture. Does anybody understand what I'm saying this morning? Church, there's going to be times that you don't see anything happening until all at once things start moving. The enemy was forced at the table of God's perfect, divine, supernatural will. Hallelujah. It's not your job to make things happen. It's your job to be ready and obedient because God has a plan to execute and a program to keep. Amen. He goes to the banquet dinner and the king says, Okay, Esther. You've been rattling my cage for the last 24 hours. He said, you've been on me. He said, I need to know what's going on. He said, you've got to tell me something. He even represents his offer. I'll give you up to half the kingdom if you want it. you just got to talk to me about what's happening. What's going on, Esther? And Esther tells him in chapter 7. And you can just imagine the fire that he probably saw behind her eyes because this was the moment. This was the pivot. And Esther says, O king. She says, O king, if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. In other words, Esther says, if they were going to make me a slave, I could have lived with that. But they're trying to kill me. This is a little bit more extreme. This is something more than I, I could bear, Xerxes. And, and, and what happens is the king asks the queen, he says, who is he? The king, this drunken oppressor, who is causing this edict to be passed that will kill all of God's people, just now still has to bend at the will of God. And he says, who is he? He says, who is this person who wants to kill my wife and kill my wife's people? He says, what you talking about, Willis? He says, who is he? And in verse 5, he says, but where is he? He says, who is he? And where is he? Guess who's coming to dinner? Who is he? And where is he? Who would presume to do this? Who are you talking about, Esther? And it's in verse 6, chapter 7, that Esther says, The adversary and the enemy is this vile Haman. 
And then it says, Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. I mean, that'll shake you up. She called him out, saying, this man who I invited to dinner, he's the one trying to kill me and all of my people. And I need you to catch the picture this morning because this is not a fairy tale. This is not a nice little story we read from a book of great heroic character. What I'm trying to get across to you is that this is all about God's timing in your placement in this timeline. I'm telling you, your burdens are not always so much about rebuking the devil as much as they are being obedient and steadfast to where you're at. Here's the scoop. Here, go ahead, give God praise. Clap for him. He's brought you this far. Hallelujah. Here's the scoop. If Esther would have told Xerxes at the banquet when he wasn't mad at Haman, and when Haman wasn't mad at Mordecai, when he had built the gallows for him, and when Mordecai had not yet been elevated to the second in command, the king would have had a totally different perspective on the situation because now Mordecai's relationship to the king has changed. Everything has been repositioned. Everything has been recalibrated. And let me tell you, God's not finished yet. Esther says, Haman is the man who wants to get rid of me. And oh my, the king is boiling hot. You know those cartoons where the face just gets red like a thermometer. It rises and steam's blowing out both ears. That's what's happening right now with the king. He's boiling hot. And verse 7 says, he's so angry that he went into the palace garden. You can only imagine how he was probably trying to collect himself before he went and had to take care of some business. Before the court dogs had a new chew toy, if you get what I'm saying. He was boiling hot. Now watch this. Verse 8 says, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. That's a bad picture to look at. Verse 7 says he was begging for his life. And verse 8 now says that he's fallen on the couch where Esther is reclining. So the king is fuming mad, and Xerxes walks into that visual because he hadn't been in there the whole time. How do you think that looks? The king Xerxes, he doesn't know what to say now. He's so mad that Haman planned to do this. Esther's laying on the couch, and Haman, you know, he ain't too proud to beg. And he's pleading for his life. I mean, he goes to Esther, and he's crying out to her. He's saying, Esther, please, please, Esther, don't let him kill me. And I can only imagine the promises that he was making that were saying that he could have never kept just to get out of where he was. It's in verse 8 that it's, well, remember, the king is piping hot. Verse 8 says, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Xerxes basically said, oh no, he did not. I am not seeing what I'm thinking that I am seeing right now. No way that boy is acting like this in my house, on my couch, trying to plow with my heifer, especially after all of this. Ain't no way that's happening. Xerxes, he's thinking, you already told me you want to kill her, and now you're doing this. Now you're all up on her. That ain't going to work in my place, Bubba. He's saying, that ain't going to work. You're not going gonna to assault my wife? No, 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 no. No, that ain't how it's going to happen. Now listen to me. Listen to me. That's not what Haman was trying to do. He wasn't trying to molest the queen 
in his house. The word says he was pleading for his life, not taking advantage of, of Xerxes' wife. But here's the scoop, and I need you to grab a hold of this. God is so particular that he can create impressions. Did that hit anywhere? God is so particular that he can create impressions. God is so good. God is so nuanced. God is so omniscient that he will make something look like it's not really that in order to accomplish his purpose. Because the king walked in at just the right time for him to see something that actually was not, but that would actually accomplish the will of God in the situation to overcome him who was trying to kill his people. Is anybody hearing me this morning? But wait, there's more. Just like with our story, God's still not done yet with this story. He's not finished yet because after the king comes in and sees what Haman is allegedly doing, verse 9 says, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, Hey, king. He said, We got a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits standing over there by Haman's house. He had set that pole up there, that, those gallows for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king and save your life. And the king said, well, what are you standing there for? Hang him on it. All right, so guess what? God delayed Esther from telling the king to give Haman time to get mad so that he would build a gallow for Mordecai in order that Mordecai might dig his own grave because of his own bitterness. I need you to hear me this morning. God will let unbelievers, or catch this, even believers with a bad spirit, express their anger against believers and then turn around and use that very thing to destroy the evil mission of the unbeliever from destroying the believer. And it's all got to do with obedience. It's all got to do with time. It's all got to do with God nuancing time and strategically organizing an order of events for the redemption of his people. Does anybody have a little confidence in who God is and what he can do for you this morning and what his plan might be even though you can't see it? Because there's a Haman right now building a gallow for some of you. But God right now is in a higher place dealing with somebody Haman doesn't have a right to touch and he's going about you in your life and your timeline and if you'll stay faithful to the timeline if you'll stay faithful to the hand that's dealt to you right now God's going to come through for you hallelujah it doesn't matter what it looks like it doesn't matter what paper's been signed it doesn't matter what the report says it doesn't matter what's been delivered there's nothing too big Somebody raise your white flag and say, I give up. I'm going to let Jesus from here on out take this thing over. Amen. So listen, they hung Haman. They hung him on the gallows that he built for God's man. But I want you to notice something else about time. This is all about time. I want you to notice something else. In verse 8, when the king comes in and sees Haman and what looks like uh, to be Haman assaulting Esther, his wife, it says, as soon as the word left the king's mouth. As soon. That's a time word. Soon is a time word. As soon. Immediately. As soon as the word left the king's mouth. They covered Haman's face. By the time Xerxes finished speaking, Haman's head was already covered. Why is that significant? Significant. 
I'm going to tell you why. It's because this was a time of judgment. And hear me, Haman wasn't going to be given the chance to uh, plead his case. And as soon as Xerxes finished the last word of that sentence, the enemy was already covered up and taken out. Because when, hear me, when you're sensitive to God's spirit and you have enough backbone to stand up for what's right despite what opposition stands around you, God will begin to move suddenly on your behalf. You won't have time to look around and think about what's going to happen. It's going to have already happened. It won't take long for you to see your redemption drawing nigh when you've drawn nigh unto redemption. Hallelujah. So they hang Haman on the gallows that was prepared for Mordecai and the king's anger. It subsided, but now there's still a problem. There's still a problem because there's a law out there that says all the Jews are to be exterminated. That was something they couldn't reverse. That was an irrevocable uh, executive order, if you would. So what happens now with Haman dead is, is Mordecai gets elevated, and Esther inherits all of Haman's estate. And they do something significant. Esther and Mordecai, they write up a new decree that gives the Jews the right to bear arms, essentially. Okay? All the Jews, they get the ability to defend themselves when this edict comes around. They all get their free uh, come and take it signs in the mail from the palace, okay? Not really. But they get this right to defend themselves. They, they have this ability now where they're going to not just be left stranded and murdered uh, in cold blood in their homes with all the women and the children. It's not going to be like that anymore. And so all over there's great feast and celebration for the saving of God's people from the, the imminent threat that was just coming down upon them and how God saved them, there, the doom that was soon to come. But now the Jews are rejoicing because they're not helpless anymore. It's not that there's not going to be a fight to come, but it's now that there's hope because they're not left isolated because God moved in a way that didn't leave them stranded. Because God put people in certain places to enact certain orders that would give them the ability to stand up for themselves. Come on, somebody. And what I love is the last verse of chapter 8. It says this. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and there was gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And this is the part I love. It says... And many people, oh, this is good. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. That's like saying a whole bunch of sinners just got saved. Amen. A whole bunch of unbelievers just got uh, to an altar. In other words, what just happened is when they saw what God was doing for his people, they said, we want some of that. Amen. And to become a Jew meant that you had to come under the Jewish covenant. To come under the Jewish covenant meant you had to accept the Jewish God. So they said, we need what you guys got. We don't have the kind of source you've got. Our well isn't so deep. Can we come taste and see that the Lord is good. Has anybody ever tasted and seen that the Lord is good no matter what it looked like in the beginning? Hallelujah. Listen up. God may put you in a bad situation so that he gives you a supernatural deliverance so that the other folks around you are going to want to attach to the God who delivered you because they want some of this. 
They want to see God do for them what he's done for you. Don't you ever undermine what God is doing right now because you may be disrespecting a future testimony. Don't degrade what now could be God's purpose, but that will someday bloom into God's promise. We do an awful lot of damage when we sacrifice his plan because of our emotions and feelings. Emotions don't dictate the master you serve. What dictates the master you serve is the spirit you carry. What kind of spirit are you carrying this morning? Chapters 9 and 10, the conclusion of Esther, they're a culmination of the victory that the Jews received when the day came for decree number one to be enacted where all the foes of the Jews would attack. And let me tell you, all the foes of the Jews did attack. But the Jews fought back and completely decimated the hand of the enemy when they came for their home. Amen. Then Esther and Mordecai, to commemorate this historic win, they made, a, they made an annual celebration. They made a holiday. They made a holiday so that the descendants of these Jews would never let this memory go, grow cold, so they would never forget what God did for them, so that they never forget where they once were and where they ended up because of God turning tables, because of God giving someone the upper hand. I'm going to tell you today that Esther is a story of divine reversal. It's a story where the unseen hand of providence stretched way down and met the needs behind the scenes. It's a story where God's face was not seen, but you could see the evidence of his goodness left all over their lives. It's a story where the father's name was not mentioned, but he left his fingerprints scattered all over it. And from the opening of this book, the enemy had a plan to squander the future of God's people. And through a series of spectacular events, some great and some very unfortunate, God had reversed every evil breakdown. I'm getting somewhere this morning, y'all. You know, we see God's unchanging hand right down into the details. And oftentimes, we see it in the details of our own life as well. You see, in the beginning of this story, we saw the king's splendor and his feasts and the decrees, which were reversed all of a sudden by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end. And then Esther and Mordecai, what do they do? They first save the king's life, but now in reversal, in this finale, they save the lives of all of the Jews. In the, in the first half, you have Haman's elevation and his edicts and the banquet, but that all gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edicts and banquet. Then at the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's scenes where they're strategically planning uh, with the two banquets that act as, as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal of all in this story, which is Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. Somebody shout, nothing's too big for my God. It's divine reversal. But let me tell you something this morning, church. There's one reversal. There's one divine turnaround even bigger than this. Because 2,000 years ago, Satan and the constituency of hell thought they had Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, when they tacked him onto the cross with nails in his hands, lashes on his back, thorns in his brow, and a spear through his side. When they hung him high and they stretched him wide, it looked like Satan had won. But it was early. 
on Sunday morning, just a little while before the day that God raised Jesus up. And he said, oh, power is given unto me. God is a God of reversal. It doesn't matter what it looks like. He's the God of the turnaround. He's the God of the comeback. He's the God that can take your little nothing and turn it into a big something. My Bible says that if he knows when a sparrow falls from its nest, how much more does he love you? Genesis tells us that you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. David said, I was young and now I'm old, yet never have I seen the righteous forsaken. Isaiah said, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall raise up a standard against him. There may be pain in the night, but joy, it's going to come in the morning. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. For nothing is impossible with God. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Almighty. He is a God of reversals. He is a God of the turnaround. He will break the unbreakable. He's going to move the unmovable. And He's going to shake the unshakable. Hear me today. Some of you are like Esther. Some of you are like Esther. And you're in a position you don't want to be in. Am I right? You're in a position you don't want to be in. But what you don't realize is that you're strategically placed according to God's kingdom purpose. Where you are is not a mistake. Hell couldn't have put you there if it tried. You're placed according to God's kingdom purpose. Purpose. You're planted in the plot. You're nuanced in God's perfect timing. And as you stay bold in your faith, you will witness God move suddenly on your behalf, reversing every evil tactic of hell. You might not hear his voice or his words might seem distant, but he's leaving his fingerprints all over your life right now. You see where he's stirring, because right now when it feels like the enemy's going after you, it's time for the church to stand flat-footed and say, nothing is too big for my God. Hallelujah. I may not see God performing the work in this moment. I may not be able to see him or or hear his voice, but I'm going to look where I've seen his activity. If I can't see him in front of me, and if I can't figure out what he's doing right now, I'm going to look behind me like David, and I'm going to say to that Philistine, the same God who pulled me out of the mouth of the lion, who closed the paw of that bear, he's going to deliver me. He's going to deliver me today, and no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Hallelujah. Greater is he that's living on the inside of me than he that's within the world. The placement you're in, my I leave you weary, but hear me, weary not in well-doing. Hallelujah, because nothing is too big for my God. When his face is absent and when his voice is not heard, you need to watch for his hand. You need to watch for his hand. This morning as the worship team's coming up, I want to ask you today, I want to ask you, is there anybody in this house that has a place in your life that needs some reversing? Is there something in, inside of your life 
a life near yours. Something that affects you or your family. Maybe it's your job. Maybe there's drama at your work. Maybe there's health problems in your body or your home. Maybe your relationship with your kids isn't what it, need, what it, isn't what it needs to be right now. Maybe your marriage isn't what you want it to be. I'm going to tell you, nothing is too big for my God. The devil's not so good that he can keep God from redeeming it. He's not. What the devil is, is he's a defeated foe who's just bitter because he's going to hell and he's trying to drag you there with him. And if he can't drag you to hell, he's going to try and make you miserable until you get to heaven to the point where you're ineffective. This morning, if there's something in your life that you say, you know what, Tanner, I need the Lord to reverse this. I want to invite you to come to the Father's Church. And let's just pray this morning. The elders are going to meet you down here. I'll, I'll meet you down here. We're going to pray. Maybe you're wanting to get closer to the Lord, but it seems there's distractions that are preventing that. Maybe maybe, maybe you, you don't have a soundness in your mind. I don't know what it is. You do. You know. I'll tell you what I need reversing. I need reversing in the health of my family. I need God to reverse that. Some of you have things of that nature. Some things are more desperate. Some things not so desperate. I want to invite you right now to come to the front of this church. Let's pray. We're going to pray right now.